Wow, thank you so much for that. Music teams, that was great, great worship. Really feels like the Holy Spirit has something special for us here this morning in terms of a blessing on this Good Friday. And uh, we're going to continue our worship as we look into the Word of God this morning. And uh, my name is Paul Graham. I'm pastor here at Lakeside, for those that don't know me. And uh, I'm just going to open up in a word of prayer before we begin looking in 1 Peter 3. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this amazing time of prayer and worship that we've already been able to share together. And now we look to your word where we seek truth, we seek wisdom, we seek light, we seek encouragement, we seek life. And so, Father, we just pray that as we read your word and as your Holy Spirit unfolds it for us and opens our eyes and our hearts to it, that we each be blessed in the way that you have for us today. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so we will be in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. And uh, there should be, if you don't have your Bible, uh, there should be a Bible somewhere near in front of you. Uh, I don't know who's all here today, so if you don't own a Bible, you don't have one at home, you can take that one. Um, we want to make sure you have a Bible. This Good Friday message is very much in part, and I apologize for our visitors, but it is in part a continuation of last Sunday's message in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, many of you will remember that, we saw that we're in a spiritual war against powers and authorities that are not flesh and blood. And that the weapons and armor of that spiritual warfare are spiritual in nature. It's a battle that we don't fight against men and women. It's not a battle against people. It's a battle against powers and principalities. And the battles that we fight are not the kind of battles that we might expect. We're not trying to overcome some person or overcome, uh, do battle with our neighbors. Uh, it's a battle of peace. It's a battle of love to be kind to one another, to at all times, as much as possible with us, be at peace. So it's a battle that we're in, but not the battle we expect, as most things are in Scripture, not what we expect. And our passage today on Good Friday deals directly with that spiritual battle. And specifically, encouragingly, I hope we will see, it describes the victory has already been won over those spiritual powers. In other words, when we do battle in spiritual warfare, we do battle against an already defeated enemy. And just like the war that we fight in spiritual warfare is unexpected, we will see this week that the victory that we have has also been won in an unexpected way. We discover that our commander-in-chief, our general, our admiral, our king, is going to win this spiritual battle for us through suffering and death but it's still a glorious and ultimately victorious death. And to understand this section here in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, we have to spend some time on it. And Peter goes deep into the mystery of Jesus' work on the cross here. It's a very deep and rich text, even though it's very short. And so uh, there's some complexity to it. We're not going to deal too much with verse 20, um, but you will see why it's important that Peter writes this the way that he does in just a moment. So 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, he's describing the triumph of Christ's sufferings. It says, For Christ also suffered, and some of your translations may say died, 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Christ is victorious in suffering even unto death. And I I want us to understand this victory in five ways today. And I'll just warn you that I don't spend the same amount of time on each of the five points. So if in point one you're looking at your watch wondering how long this will go on, (laughs) don't despair. Section one is one of the longer ones. The other ones are a little bit shorter. Four, I pick up the pace again a little bit, but... We're going to look at five ways in which Christ is victorious in suffering. It is a unique victory. It is a vicarious victory. It is a purposeful victory. It is a proclaimed victory. It's an eternal victory. Excuse me. So first of all, it's a unique victory. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And some manuscripts, as I mentioned, may have said died there instead of suffered in your Bible. You could say either one of those. There's sort of equal manuscript weight as to which word is there in the Greek. And either way, even if it says suffered, it would still be interpreted as died because the rest of the sentence says that Christ suffered unto death. Uh, he was put to death in the flesh and clarifies that suffering that Peter has in mind. And so Christ also died once for sins. It was a one-of-a-kind death. And the word unique is used pretty usely these days. We use the term unique meaning something interesting or notable. You say something like, oh, that Ikea table, coffee table, is kind of unique. Meanwhile, they're mass-produced by the tens of thousands. But, you know, it's a unique table. And unique actually literally means one of a kind, unlike anything else in the world. And we had an example, even this past week, of the cost of losing something unique. Notre Dame is a -a one-of-a-kind cathedral. There's buildings burn every day, but not that building, right? Not one like Notre Dame, not that cathedral. And the world took notice when something so unique suffered and perished. And the world not only noticed, but the world has proclaimed the value of the uniqueness of Notre Dame with over a billion dollars already raised to repair it. Just a few days. So we understand what uniqueness is and the value of it. We know unique when we really see it. Well, Jesus' death was one of a kind. It was not like any other death or sacrifice the world has ever seen. Great men and great women have died for great causes before. But never God incarnate as man. Never a man or a woman has or could die for the sins of all those who trust him from every nation, tribe, and language on earth. The victory of Christ on the cross was unique. It was one of a kind. He suffered once for sins, a singular death unlike any other for all time. It's also a unique victory because Jesus died once for all. And the uniqueness is highlighted by the sacrifices of Israel. Many of Peter's readers here were Jewish, and having been brought up as Jewish faith, they understood that the priests were always about the business of sacrifice. They sacrificed for themselves to purify and consecrate themselves as priests for their own sins, and then after they had done that, they were able to sacrifice and for the sins of other people and the sins of the nation. 
And all of the Jewish culture rotated around the sacrifices that punctuated the weeks and months of the year and the feasts. And they were tremendous events. But all the people understood that once the sacrifice was done, once they had returned from the temple, once they had returned to daily life, it was only a matter of time before they had to do it all over again because the sacrifice would never last. And this is why they looked for a Messiah. This is why they looked for a Lamb of God who would finally come and make one sacrifice for all time. And the writer of Hebrews highlights this in Hebrews 7.27. He says, unlike the other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is a unique victory. Jesus died one of a kind and one time for all time and sat down at the right hand of God. Secondly, it's a vicarious victory. There's your $5 word for the day. A vicarious victory. For sins, he died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Vicarious means something is being done for another. And Jesus was unjustly executed. He was without sin. Pilate found no fault in him. The Jews had to come up with lies about him. They had to bribe false witnesses to bring about an illegal conviction because there was no sin in Jesus. Mark 14 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So there's the, the priests and the high priests and the Jewish council trying to come up with these trumped-up charges against Jesus and their testimony couldn't agree with each other, even on things that they had all heard him say about tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They were trying to testify that he was somehow blaspheming the temple and they couldn't even get their story straight on that. And then it goes to Pilate. So, so Pilate went outside to them and said, well, what accusation do you bring against this man? And the priests and the council answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Well, I think a lawyer is going to take care of that one, right? Well, obviously he's guilty or we wouldn't have brought him here. Yeah, yeah, but what did he do? Just trust us, he's guilty. But do you have an accusation? We wouldn't have been here unless he was guilty. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you don't have to be too clever of a lawyer to unmask that argument, right? I mean, they had nothing. And then further on, the criminal on the cross sees the same thing. In Luke 23, one of the criminals that was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The undeserved suffering of Jesus had not just made its way through the court systems and through the crowd, but it made it right up to the crosses the criminals were hanging on. Everyone knew that this was an unjust crucifixion. And then as we saw earlier with Levi in that beautiful song, the centurion at the foot of the cross, after witnessing the whole debacle of the day and the death of Jesus concludes, this was a righteous man. This victory that Jesus won was vicarious. Even Judas then admits in Matthew 27, as we keep going through the day, says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying 
innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See it to it yourself. Even Judas says, I betrayed innocent blood. The council can't accuse him. Pilate has no criminal argument against him and washes his hands of it. The, the thieves on the cross see it. The centurion sees it. Judas sees it. The suffering and death of Jesus was undeserved. Jesus died for sin, it says in 1 Peter 3. Jesus died for sin, but it's clear, it's been repeated over and over and over again in the Gospels, everybody has testified that he was without sin. So if Jesus died for sin, he must have died for the sin of others. It's the sinner's sin that he died for, not his own. Are there any sinners present this morning? Yeah, all of us, right? Right? Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. Peter says the righteous for the unrighteous. It's a vicarious victory. It was not for Jesus' sake that he died. It was for ours. And so those who are unrighteous should run to Christ and thank him for what he has done. This is the best news that you will ever hear. That there has been this great exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that the unrighteous can run to Jesus and praise him and worship him and thank him. Because not only has he set you free of guilt and wiped your sentence clean, he has also transmuted the exchanges that we gain his righteousness. We're not just declared not guilty and get to walk out of the courtroom. They pin a medal on you and hold a parade because when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's an amazing exchange. It's the good news that we run to Christ and thank him for. Thirdly, it was a purposeful victory. Peter says that he might bring us to God. This is the defining statement of why Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die to bring us to God. The the victory was won purposefully for relationship with God. We could not go to God without it. God could not receive us without it. This victory had a purpose. It was necessary. And no other suffering, no other death, no other sacrifice, no other work accomplishes this purpose. There is one way for this purpose to be accomplished, for us to be brought to God, and it had to be by this way. Jesus himself prayed in Gethsemane, if there is any other way, take this cup. There was no other way. For this victory to have this purpose, to bring the unrighteous to God, it had to be through this sacrifice. Muhammad never claimed to be able to bring us to God, and Muhammad cannot bring us to God. The Dalai Lama cannot bring you to God. Buddha cannot bring you to God. Oprah cannot bring you to God. Okay? She tries. Men and women have tried to bring themselves to God for centuries. Only Christ, by his death, ever claimed to be able to bring you to God and has brought you to God. Jesus said it, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in Matthew, he says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, He claimed, I I know why I'm here. I'm here to bring you to God. And it's only through me and my death that I lay down for my sheep 
that will bring you to God. It's my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins that will bring you to God. If you ever ask yourself, why did Jesus have to come to die? He came that he might bring us to God. This is what the death of Christ accomplished. It was a purposeful victory. It accomplished union with God. The greatest possible accomplishment that we could have, he achieved on the cross. But fourthly, it was a proclaimed victory. We start to get into the depths of where Peter is going, and it's, it's kind of fun reading Peter. He's not like Paul. Paul is quite often, even though he has those long run-on sentences, Paul is very logical and organized in his thinking, and he breaks off for a parenthetical thought, and he brings it back and ties it to what he was talking about. When Peter is talking, you kind of get the personality of Peter where he's just kind of going full tilt and you never know where exactly he's going to go, but it's all from the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, so he's talking about Jesus' death on the cross and then he says, in which he was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then he starts talking about the angels in prison in the days of Noah and then baptism. And it's like, Peter, like, come back here. You're, where, where are you going? But it's important what Peter is describing here. This victory of Christ is proclaimed. And it's an important part of Scripture that we understand that Christ has proclaimed His victories, proclaimed in many different ways. I'm just going to give you one example right away. Is the temple curtain torn in Mark 15, 37-38. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed His last. Immediately the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, have you noticed before that the minute that Jesus died, the curtain was torn, right? And you understand what I'm talking about. In the temple, it was divided into different, there was outside courts and inside rooms and different rooms inside, and there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, and the holy of holies was separated by a gigantic heavy curtain from floor to ceiling, and there was only one day, as Darko mentioned, that the high priest could go in there, one day of the year that you could enter the holy of holies. At all other times, you were separated from God, and only the high priest could go there. But at the moment of Jesus' death, this curtain which separated the holy of holies from the holy place, where nobody could go, this curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom, separating the holy place from the most holy place. It was torn so that anybody could now see into and go into the most holy place. But it wasn't torn when Jesus came from the grave. It was torn at the moment of his death. The victory came today. The resurrection we will celebrate so joyously on Sunday. But the resurrection is a sign of the promise that He is faithful. The victory is actually won today. The victory was immediate and it was proclaimed, it was declared by the tearing of that curtain that it is done, it is finished. The way to the Holy of Holies is open. And then in our text, it says that, you ever wonder this, what was Jesus doing for three days while He was dead? In the body, in the flesh. Where was Jesus? Well, Peter gives us a little insight. He says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And there's very quickly three likely meanings here, depending on how you read it. After studying it, there's kind of three ways you can look at it. It was Jesus' spirit by which Noah preached. 1 Peter 1, 10-11 says that the prophets who prophesied were prophesying in the spirit of Christ, with the spirit of Christ in them indicating what was to come. And so some people read this and just say, well, he's just talking about the spirit of Christ prophesying through the prophets in the past. Not a lot of people hold to that. The second way is Jesus is proclaiming to the spirits of the faithful kept in paradise until the cross comes, until the judgment can come. 
Ephesians 4, 8 and 9 and Psalm 68, 18 says, when, when he ascended, he led a host of captives. Right? Or the parable of the poor man Lazarus at the gate, where he would, could, was in the bosom of Abraham. Or the thief on the cross when Jesus says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so some people see this proclamation that Jesus makes to the spirit in prison is that Jesus is proclaiming to Abraham and the prophets and all the believers and all the faithful prior to the cross before their spirits could go and be absent from the body and present with the Lord, which is the way it is now. And then the third way is Jesus is speaking to the fallen angels that have been held captive since Noah's day. And you can see that in Second Peter and in Jude. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for the judgment. And then Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they didn't stay in heaven, but they left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so some people say, well, Jesus went and proclaimed to these angels who left heaven and came. And you remember... The sons of heaven married the daughters of the earth and there were giants in those days before Noah. Angels left heaven and it's those that God imprisoned and those who Jesus is going to proclaim his victory to. So Jesus, after his death, with the veil torn, goes to the spirits, whichever interpretation you want to take from that. He goes to the spirits in their place of captivity and he proclaims his victory because he will be glorified. Every knee will bow. And the Greek there for proclaimed is caruso. It's, it's not evangelon. It's not preaching the gospel. It is caruso. It is proclamation. In relation to the gospel of Jesus, caruso is only used when we talk about we preach or proclaim Christ crucified. Or some preach Christ from envy. That's when they use that word for it's defined. But here, when it's just standing on its own, this word simply means herald or proclamation. And so there's a sense here that Peter is saying that when Jesus died on the cross, he immediately went to the spirits in prison or to those in captivity and he proclaimed his victory. He heralded his victory to those spirits. He went and heralded and proclaimed something to these spirits and said, it's finished, I'm victorious. And we get a sense of this in Colossians as well. If you're saying, Paul, you're reading a lot into Peter there. Well, you can go to Colossians 2. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he sent aside, nailing it to the cross. Now look at 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is triumphing in this victory and he's proclaiming his victory. It's a proclaimed victory. Everybody knows that Jesus has already won this battle. And then finally, it's an eternal victory. It's not from this text, but let's just look at Revelation. I, I want to see the connection to this. I think it's important that we understand that this victory continues on for eternity. Revelation 5, 5 to 6. And John, in his vision, as he's the, the curtain of this reality is peeled back, and John is given a vision, a revelation of the heavenly reality that is taking place. And as the curtain of this reality is pulled back, and he sees the elders there who are worshiping, it says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So the lamb was alive. John could see in this vision that the lamb was standing, but it was a lamb that appeared as though slain. It was a lamb that bore the wounds of its death. And see how it's named. See how this lamb is described. It's called the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. He has conquered. He is victorious. And so we have this picture as this reality is pulled back and John gives us a glimpse of eternity in the spiritual realm of heaven. He says the lamb is standing. It's a lamb that's roaring. It's a lion of Judah. It's a root of David. But it appears as though slain. The wounds of this victory is, are eternal and they go on for us to worship and glorify Jesus for eternity. When we get our resurrection bodies, I don't anticipate any wounds. I don't anticipate any illness. I don't anticipate any sore. But when Christ appeared in the upper room, What did he say to Thomas? Touch my hands. Touch my side. I believe, and as John sees here in Revelation, that the Lamb of God will appear to us with his wounds for eternity because we will worship and we will praise and we will glorify the slain Lamb forever. This victory is eternal. And we will be eternally reminded of this victory on the cross. We will worship and praise the victory of Jesus' wounds for all eternity. The glory of Jesus in this victory is for eternity. His scars were on his hands and on his side for Thomas. And his scars will be visible to us. For us at any point in the future to go forward and touch those scars and remind ourselves again that he has won the victory. It's a unique victory. It's a vicarious victory. It's a purposeful victory. It's a proclaimed victory. It's an eternal victory in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What was needed to unite us to God is finished on the cross of Christ. Martin Luther, the one of the ones who seeded the Reformation, Martin Luther as a Catholic priest used to have nightmares and he had a very direct imagined, visionary, wrestling with Satan for much of his life. And he would have nightmares through the night where he would have visions of Satan tempting and tormenting him. And in one of his nightmares, Satan came to him and was listing all of his sins, sin after sin after sin. And Martin Luther said, is that all? And Satan said, no, there's more. And he listed sins and sins upon sins. And Martin Luther said, is that all? And Satan said, no, there's more. And he finally listed all of the sins. And Satan said, those are all the things that you're guilty of. And Martin Luther said, yes. And at the bottom of them, paid by Jesus Christ. This is the victory that we have. Unique and vicarious for us. Purposeful to bring us to God. Proclaimed, triumphed over those spirits that we are supposedly at battle with. And eternal this victory that we have in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, you celebrate it. If you're here today and you've not yet believed, then take hold of it. 
Apprehend this unexpected victory. It is the best news you could ever hear. Everything has been done for you on the cross of Christ. All you have to do is come and trust. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victory of Jesus. What an unusual victory that our king, our general, our admiral, our chief would go to die. All of hell was arrayed against him. Satan gloated for a moment and then realized all was lost for him and everything was gained for us. Father, I pray that this truth would change our hearts, that we would just be more than encouraged, we would celebrate the victory that you've accomplished. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.